You thought that you could have it all And life could be a ball But you fell and scabbed your knee Now you can be free Hello Welcome to the Recovering CEO Podcast. Uh, my name is Derek, the Recovering CEO, and you are here for another exciting episode. We have a great guest today. Uh, his name is Kevin Wilson. He is calling from the East Coast. He is 32 years sober. He's got an amazing story. And Kevin, how are you today? I'm doing great, Derek, and yourself? Doing well, my friend, doing well. Um, I think our listeners want to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, what brought you here and how did you end up sober, Kevin? Well, you know, as I reflect back, it, it was, uh, I guess growing up, I was always inquisitive. You know, I was always observant of the older family members. And I noticed one thing during Thanksgiving and Christmas, that there was a a lot of drinking going on, alcohol, and being raised in my grandfather's house with several aunts and a mother, um, you know, I was surrounded by women, but I stayed close to my uh, grandparents and mainly my grandfather. And um, I just noticed this, you know, it was beer and alcohol everywhere. And so as I got a little bit older, doing a holiday uh, gathering, I remember uh, we were at my grandfather's house, and I told my sister, since everyone is downstairs, why don't you just stand in the hallway, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink some of this wine. And I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I know I was yet to be a teenager, and I... Uh, open up this, uh, it's called Great Grape Concord Manischewitz Wine. And I took a sip. And little did I know that that sip really, you know, was was exactly what my taste buds needed. I mean, it, it was, it felt good. And so I took another sip. And so as time went on, uh, we moved from my grandfather's house, and uh, my mother married, and so now I got a, a stepdad, and we really didn't know this guy. And so I was an outside person. I was a, I was one of the top student athletes in my school, and that's what I focused on. And, you know, I was I was never inside a lot. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden when we we moved, and then we moved again, uh, something strange happened. And I, I it, you know, it, it baffled me, but I did what a brother was supposed to do. And that was I saved... I saved my sister from being molested. I remember this night so so vividly. 
as if it happened yesterday. Uh, my mother wanted him to go to a, a cabaret. Cabaret is where people get together and dance. And so he declined. And my bedroom is adjacent to my parents' bedroom, but my sister's bedroom is to the left. So when he told my mother no, my mother said, okay, that's okay. I'll get my girlfriend to go. Well, obviously, he had a plan. So my mother goes to the cabaret with her girlfriend, and my door was cracked. And if I lean to the right at the end of my bed, I can see his his movement and my mother's movement if their doors open. So my head was down. I was counting pennies, and all of a sudden, I heard my sister say, what are you doing? Get off of me. And my, 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 I just snapped. I immediately, I grabbed my bat. I always kept a bat around because I was a baseball player. I grabbed my Louisville Slugger, 32 ounce. I'm only 5'8", and this guy is 6'6", six, six. a former cop, a former correctional officer. Imagine that. And I swiftly go into my sister's room. And I didn't hesitate. I knocked him out with the bat. But if I if I would have found his gun, he would have been dead. So anyway, my sister and I, we we got out of there that same night and we went back to the house where we were raised, which is my grandfather's house. So that incident alone, um, we're sitting in my grandfather's living room, like one o'clock in the morning and my three aunts come, you know, they open the door, let us in, we sit down. And as my grandfather was walking down the hall, because he wanted to know who was, who had just rang the doorbell at this hour. And so my aunts, one of the aunts said, it's, it's, it's Kevin and Tanya. Everything is okay. Well, number one, everything wasn't okay. So now by me being the spokesperson and my sister was sitting there nervous, shaking. I told my aunt the story. So hours hours went by, and they didn't know what to do. So now the cops knock on the door with my mother because she didn't know where we were. So <clears throat> the cop come in with my mother, and my aunt said, um, we won't take a report at this time. Uh, we'll take care of it, which eventually turned into another lie. So... We had to go back to a house where a parent was trying to manipulate his stepdaughter. We had to go back there, and I didn't like that. So I noticed there was a lot of alcohol downstairs because my mother is, you know, she's, she still drinks today. Um. I said, well, you know, this is going to be my, this is going to be my, my remedy. So I started drinking, you know, the, the alcohol downstairs and the, the beers. And, and then before you know it, when I uh, transferred from a, uh, a private school to a public school, I just got with the wrong crowd, which I thought was the right crowd. Oh, and, Kevin, Kevin, uh, Kevin, real quick. Um, 
So you had to go back to your house, even though your stepfather was there, who tried to molest your sister? Yeah, when 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 we went back that night, he wasn't there. Um, he he had vanished, and uh, later on we found out that he went back to South Carolina where he's from, and he, he didn't know what was going to you know come of it. But like, what's going to happen now? So let me get a let me get out of here. So he went back. He went back to South Carolina for a few uh, days, and then he returned. Now, upon his arrival, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that my mother is going to interrogate this guy. And um, but the only question that she asked him was, "Did you do it?" And you know, uh, I can look a person in the eye and say, uh, "I didn't do it." knowingly that I did. So he says, no, 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 Barbara, you know, I, I didn't do, I didn't do that. Well, she believed, she believed him, but she never, but she never, not one time, not one time did she come to us. She didn't ask the victim and she didn't ask her only son. She never questioned us about how, you know, uh, you know, with, what 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 took place? So in other words, she took that incident and just swept it under the rug. So I instantly became rebellious. So I stopped. I stopped eating at the, the kitchen table. I moved downstairs in the basement. I refused to say oh, good evening. Good. Uh, how you doing? I, I I just became rebellious, man. And then I started started drinking. So as time went on, I um, I was I was highly I was highly recruited for for basketball um, at the Mather High School in 1971, but I didn't have the means to get there. So I thought, and that's one of my regrets. And so I ended up going to private school, which the school was basically across the street. And when I you know got there, I started hanging around guys that. Uh, trying to fit in to be socially accepted. And so that's when I was introduced to marijuana. And then it just escalated to, uh, you know, alcohol, the gateway drugs, marijuana, and then I was introduced to speed. And not thinking at all that I was uh, a addict. I was just, you know, thinking that this is something that I can use to escape the home front. You know, this uh, this will take care of my problem, and I, I thought that for years. But little did I know, you know, I, I was I was in denial. But I didn't consider myself an addict at that time. I was just a recreational user. But then, as years go on, even though I made it through college uh, under the influence throughout the eighties, I still didn't consider myself an addict. I was just a person that drank and drugged. And, you know, uh, sleep it off and then I start over again. But I never did consider myself an alcoholic or a drug addict at that time. And I, I, I graduated and, and, and earned my two degrees and I came on back home. And uh, I was in North Carolina when I earned my college degrees. So I returned home and had a job with the Washington Star, but President Reagan, uh, abolished the newspapers, so I started my career in the educational system as a substitute teacher 
but I'm still using, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm going. Every day they call me in the sub, I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm wearing a suit, and I'm, you know, giving kids advice, but they don't know that I'm, I'm an addict and an alcoholic. And so then it, 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 it had gotten real serious when I, uh, Received my first federal government job, and you know, as they say, man, if you get a good federal government job, you're in, you're in good shape. And so, I got the job, and all of a sudden, man, somebody I graduated from speed to to cocaine, and and the the cocaine was yellow, and they told us that the, the guy forewarned us. He says, man, you can't use a whole lot of this. Is close to pure. And, you know, we looked at him and we said, yeah, okay. And he, he didn't lie. But instantly, it didn't take, uh, one week, one day, that same day that I used that yellow, uh, look like crystal cocaine, I, I became even, uh, now, now, now I believe at, at this point, that this is something that I love, and it, it's, 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 it's regulating my life, and I continue to use it. So I, I have forgotten about alcohol and uh, marijuana, those things. I didn't use that much. It was just strictly cocaine. Then I met a guy in high school. You know, I have to go back in, in, in high school to turn me on to heroin. So, as I graduated in this drug process, I I eventually told myself, hey, man, things are getting out of hand. So, I was a binge user. You know, I, I use four or five days straight, then don't use two or three days, thinking everything is okay. And even though I lost jobs and and and, and, and you know, couldn't couldn't go to work. I still didn't think <laughs> that I had a problem, you know. And, and everybody asked me, "How you doing?" I'm doing okay, but really, man, I I I just was in a big denial, and I wasn't okay until 1986. The federal government offered me a program. It was a 45 day program out in the country setting. Man, you can you can eat all you want. So I, I went in. I went in when about one forty one, and I left early. I left early because I told myself I'm not like these people. I'm not like these people in this circle. So I didn't share. I just ate the food, just passed the time, and I didn't know at that time that I had already mentally relapsed. The, the, the physical part was soon to come. And by me knowing that I had almost $7,000, I mean, I think between five and $7,000 in the bank, in my mother's account, which was mine, that's all I was thinking about. And I can't tell you today how did I save that amount when I was using it. I just can't explain that. But it it, it may have been. Lesser, I would say like three or four. But anyway, she had it. 
So I'm sitting in, in, in the first program, the first program, 45 days, and I'm saying, man, they're going to have to give me my keys. So they begged me to stay, and I said, no, this, this program can't help me because I'm not like these people. I said, give me my car keys. And they were they were really challenging me. They didn't want to give it to me. I said, look, man, give me my car keys. So finally they gave me the keys, and I went straight to my mother's job. And she was surprised. And so she started not to come downstairs from her uh, job site down to the, the lobby. And I told her what I wanted. And she simply said, if you take this money, don't come home. And so I got the money in. Off to the races one more time. And then I ended up in treatment in 87. So I'm at another treatment center. Um, I'm, I'm still back at home. And, you know, my mind is, you know, I, I, I don't really like this guy. I want to kill this guy, you know, for uh, taking advantage of my sister. You know, that's all that's going through my mind. And next thing you know, I'm in treatment. I come out of treatment, I go back to the job, and uh, I did pretty good. But then again, man, that disease took over one more time. And so this time, in 88, before I left, I had uh, I had lifted a sack of mail in, improperly, and something popped in my back. And come to find out, it was my lower uh, lower back muscle strain, so I still have that problem today. It's even worse now. But anyway, they 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 put me in light duty, and I stayed light duty for a while. But what what triggered it? What triggered it was they put me under a air conditioner that was blowing air conditioned real strongly, and that air got into my back, and that caused me to leave the job that I went on a binge for I don't know how long. So I'm out there in the wilderness, man, just, 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 just using. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're, we're in the woods and we had just got finished using. And these three cops entered the woods and one of the cops, he was very well known for dealing with, you know, dope dealers and users. And his name was Bigfoot. He was about six eight and he had big feet. But everybody knew him throughout the Washington DC area. So he comes in the woods and he says, Don't nobody move. Don't nobody move. Well when he said that I moved. Because I just got high and I refused to go to DC jail feeling the way that I did. So I ran. And I'm running for my life. And my heart was throbbing, man. It felt like my heart was going to come out my chest. And I know back then, as I know today, he could have shot me in my back. But thank God he didn't. And so I kept on running. I'm running for my freedom. So as I'm running, I fall. And uh, I, I fall in front of two beautiful women. <laughs> i never forget that. They were very, very attractive, man. And they were wiping the hubcaps of a Mercedes Benz, and I fell, I tripped right in front of them, and one of them said, honey, you got to get up, because here they come, she's talking about the cop car, so it was a one-way street, so as I'm running, as I'm running, the cop car caught up with me, but it was only one cop in the car, 
and she was a female, and she looked at me. So just picture this. I'm running on the sidewalk, and a cop car is right beside me on the road. And she says, are you tired of running yet? And I looked at her, and I said, no, I'm not tired, and I'm not going to stop. And after I said that, I made a quick detour into somebody's front yard, hopped over the fence, hopped over her, her, her backyard fence, and I ended up in a hill, on, on, on a hill with three gigantic holes. And I think those holes were for brand new houses. That was the, you know, the, the starting foundation to dig a hole. So I laid down in one of those holes, just like if I was in Vietnam fighting in a war, get down in a hole and protect your soldiers and take care of the enemy. Well, I got down. I laid on my back, man. My, my, my heart was going like a hundred miles per hour. And I could hear, I could hear the entire conversation that the officer that was in the car pursuing me, she, she got out and knocked on the door of the home, I mean, of the yard that I ran through. And she says, uh, how you doing, man? My name is Lieutenant. Can you go in your backyard and see if there is a person back there we're trying to apprehend, but we don't know if he's armed or not? So she says, sure. And she walks in her backyard by herself. She walks all the way to the fence, and she leans over, and she gives me eye contact. Now, nobody can convince me. You can call him what you want. You can call him God. You can call him your high power. You can call him Jehovah. It doesn't matter. When she looked at me, I didn't know what she was going to tell the officer. But she went back and told the officer, uh, Officer, I'm so sorry, but I think whoever you're looking for, he kept on running because there's nobody back there. So to me, after I heard that, that was the answer that God was looking out for me one more time. And so I had to wait. I had to wait until it turned turned night because it was, uh, you know, summertime and daylight saving time. So I had to wait till about 9 o'clock for it to get dark so I can go back to my buddy's house. And um, the cop went on about her business and... That was it. So when it when it turned nighttime, I got I came out of the hole. I walked right back through the same environment where the cops came earlier that day, because that was the that was that was the route that I took. I don't know why, but that was the route that I took. And out of nowhere, a guy approached me. He said, "Hey, man, you just got out of jail." And I looked at him. I said. Brother, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, weren't you one of the one of the persons that was in the woods when Bigfoot arrived? I said, brother, I don't know what you're talking about. And I kept on walking. I never stopped walking. And that was the last dialogue I had with him. When I got to my buddy's house, which was about 100 yards away from this red light district, 
He opened the basement door, and I looked him in the eye, and I told him, this is it. And I got down on my knees, and I said a prayer to God. And I, it, I, I think I said, if you, if you would help me to get in a long-term treatment center, this time I won't look back. And so the process started. So I went through the uh, the counselor in D.C., a female counselor, and she educated me about being genetically addicted. And I didn't understand none of that, but she broke it down for me. And she said, how are you going to get to this program without taking methadone? I said, well, don't, don't, don't worry about that. If you get me, excuse me, if you get me in, I will do very, very well because I'm tired. And so she had me to go upstairs and talk to the director of the methadone program in Washington, D.C., Dr. John Jackson. So I'm sitting in front of this director, and he's he's asking me, you know, what do I need? I said, sir, I just need to get into your program until one of these long-term programs will accept me. And he says, well, um, and, and then I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to take any methadone. And after I said that, that caught his attention. He said, what did you just say? I said, sir, I don't want to take no methadone. I will take all the urines you want. I will attend every group, but I don't want to take no methadone. So he says, well, what kind of habit did you have? And I said, sir, I don't want to exaggerate. I had a habit. And I, when, when, when I didn't, when I, when, when we did not get the heroin, we use methadone. So I don't want to substitute one for the other. That's not going to help me. But I know a man that's going to help me to go cold turkey. But he never asked me the man's name. And so he just looked at me like I was from another planet. And so he says, okay. Okay, Mr. Wilson, um, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 6 to 7. Can you do that? I said, yes, sir. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I was in the, you know, the, the program, and I was living with a woman, unhealthy relationship, but I was living with her, and I was going back and forth, back and forth. And then finally, in 88, I got into a long-term program, and I didn't know what this program was going to deliver. So when I got there, I noticed if you act out, they'll put a sign on you, and you have to wear that sign throughout the whole day, or you might have to stand in the corner and look at yourself in a mirror all day long and say, I shall not talk in group. And it was an Afrocentric therapeutic program, and it was not for me. So I told I told the brother, um, hey man, this is not for me. Take me back to Washington. I, I'll find another program. So they begged me to stay. They begged me to stay. And it just wasn't for me. But I stayed clean. I stayed clean. And when I went back to DC, I went back to the, the lady's house I was staying with. And then I told her, uh, I'm gonna 
keep going forward until I get into another program. So I went to an AA meeting right around the corner from her her house. And who do I see? My big brother slash sponsor. His, his name is Vincent Artist. He's passed, but Vincent Vincent died thirty years sober. But he what what took him away from here was uh, uh, diabetes. So Vincent is sitting right near the door, and he noticed me coming. He says, "Oh my God, look what the wind blew in." So I walked over to him. I was glad to see him. I told him the truth, what was going on, and he says, you know what? Leave that woman alone. I can get you into a long-term program. There's a counselor from the program that's going to come here tonight. I'm going to introduce you to him, and you can take it from there. So the counselor walks in, and, he, you know, we, he, we do the introduction piece, and, and he, he, gave, he gave me instructions. He says, look, man. <clears throat> This is the easiest program in the world. And I said, okay. I said, you know, frankly, I don't care what type of program it is, as long as it's not where you have to wear signs. Look, look, I'm, I'm, I can follow instructions. I can follow instructions. I can make curfew. I will go to my meetings. I surrender. And so he says, okay, be downtown at 8 o'clock uh, Monday. So the first Four Mondays, I was rejected because there was no bed space. But in between those Mondays, going into the next Monday, I kept going to meetings. I just kept going to meetings. I knew how the program worked. I just wasn't working the program. I just wasn't working the program. And so, and so, you know, uh, that, that fourth, that fourth Monday, that fourth, no, no, that fifth Monday, that fifth Monday, it was me, me, Mark, Charles, and another guy, and Ron. We all got in. But I was the youngest one. I was, I was 30, I was 32 years old. And it was a work therapy, it was a work therapy program. And so, at first, the program director who was in recovery, she didn't want me to come in the program because I had a bad back. And I said, wait a minute, miss. I'm pretty sure that I can do something in this program. You know, I can, I can sort. I can sort. I just don't, can't lift heavy objects. I can do that. So you worked as part of the program, part of the yeah. party program? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was, it was an inpatient. It was an inpatient, long-term work therapy slash spiritual program. And you had to go to church on Sunday. You had to go to church on Sundays, whether you liked it, whether you liked it or not. So I said, she says, "Hold on for a second. Uh, I'll be right back. I'll be right back." So I didn't know, I didn't know where she was going. When she came back, she says, uh, Kevin, uh, it's, it's okay. Uh, you can, uh, you, 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 you are admitted in, into the program. 
Now, what I'd like for you to do is take a urine, and um, we'll show you to your dorm. So I, I was gladly to take a urine, and uh, so I, I surrendered on April the 7th, 1989, but I believe I got into the program, this particular program, which was my fifth in August of uh, 1989. And so I'm in the program, and I go upstairs. I'm, I'm happy, you know. Uh, I I I got permission from the federal from the federal government program to go and save my life. I got it on paper. I don't know where it is, but I know I got permission. And then so I could just focus on the program. And so there was like ten of us in the dorm. I was the youngest one. Everybody had been to prison. And, uh, they would tell me stories and, you know, said if I need anything, let them know. And I was, I was tested because I wanted to, uh, really I wanted to kill this guy. And so the guy that, the older guy that, uh, noticed me, noticed that something was wrong, he pulled me to the side. He says, hey man, you don't want to do that. You just got here. And but trust me, this this program is better than prison. And he says, I did I did 17 years in an underground prison. And I looked at him. I said, What? He says, Yes. He says, Man, I like you. You're gonna be all right. You're gonna be all right. Just ignore him and uh, and, and and pray for him. And that's what I did. So instead of doing things the street way, I was slowly being taught how to do things. The spiritual way, because it's a it's a spiritual program, and and that's what I had to learn how how to do. And this guy really helped me tremendously. So after after ninety after I want to say seventy, eighty, ninety days, they stopped calling my name for urine because they they could see that I was sincere about the program. So I I, I did sorting. I sorted clothes for it was very tedious for fifteen months. And now, okay, I got the drugs. I got the drugs and alcohol straight one day at a time. But now I'm still smoking those new parts. So I got attached to a church that, that was nearby and and I asked the minister, I said, Look, I'm I'm in this program but man, I'm still smoking new parts. So he says, well, is there a place where you can pray? I said, yeah, we got a chapel. We, we it's, it's mandatory that we go to church every Sunday. He says, okay, well, that's how you're going to stop smoking. I said, what do you mean? He says, every time that the urge come on, go to the chapel and pray. And I took that suggestion and it worked. So when we work, like normal people work eight to five or, you know, different shifts, eight-hour shifts, we work from eight to 4.30. And in between that time, we got two breaks. We got a lunch break, and then we got a 15-minute break. So instead of smoking, I would go and pray. And then I found myself, I found myself the urge, the compulsion, the obsession to smoke Newport's. It had disappeared, and so now I'm 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 straight. 
Okay, but that happened a year later. So it's 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 thirty one years for uh, being nicotine free. <laughs> and so the program really saved saved my life and and I did everything. I did everything right. I did everything right. I never missed a curfew. If they want me to work on 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 Saturdays for for donations, I did it. I didn't complain about nothing. Uh, the um, the food the food was 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 good, and, and I mean I had I had good roommates, and it, eventually I graduated from a dorm to a two room, and so we went from the first site which was sold to the Georgetown University Law Center. So they moved us. They moved us to a hotel. So picture, picture a bunch of addicts and alcoholics in a hotel on the entire second floor. And to the left is the IHOP, International House of Pancakes. To the right is a liquor store. I repeat, to the right was a liquor store. So you kind of like ask yourself, why would a spiritual work therapy program put a group of addicts and alcoholics next to a liquor store? And that's when only the strong survive. So I got a promotion from sorting to security. So that means that the guys had to turn in their hotel keys to me before they go to sleep. And I had uh, I worked from 11 to 7. And I ran into all types of people at night because on the first floor was everything that brought us to treatment. The cocaine, That was all on the first floor because the people that indulged were on the first floor, pimps, prostitutes. And everybody on the first floor had to come to the second floor to see me in order to get some ice. So one night I may talk to a pimp. Another night I may talk to a prostitute. Another night I may talk to a guy on dope. But they had no clue. They had no clue. Well, at least I, I didn't think they had a clue. What was going on on the second floor? And it was only, it was only two, it, it was only a two floor, uh, motel lodge. So we were on the second. There wasn't no third floor, just two floors. So I said, man, but you know, it didn't faze me at all because I had surrendered. And so my job was to log everything that I saw, uh, anybody that I interact with. And that's what I did. And at 5 o'clock, I had to make coffee for the guys that were going out to work. And I uh, I did that. And uh, the next thing you know, I go to a meeting. And my, that same counselor that I met by way of my sponsor, he found out, well, I told him that I like to write. 
So he wanted to introduce me to a Washington Post staff writer. He says, you and him would get along great. So I, I want to take you to this meeting. It was, we had a van. So it'd be like 10 or 12 of us in a, in a van going to an outside meeting. And so he'd take me to this meeting and I'd meet this guy. And before the meeting, he says, hey man, how you like the program? I said, I love it. He says, uh, you like to write? I said, yes. And he says, well, why don't you write about some of those guys in, in the program? Interview some of those guys. Those guys are intelligent. And write about how you feel every day. He says, I guarantee you, if you write three to five pages a night and you stay there past 365 days, you have a book by the time you leave there. And my eyes got big. <laughs> my eyes got big like, oh man, this is a, this is a fabulous idea. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And so by me being on that desk at night, guys, they had to go to sleep at 11 o'clock. They could not come out of their room after 11. So, so once I knew that, then I put the pen to the paper. And that's how, that's how I wrote my first book. It was three chapters. Each chapter is a place where we live. So we live in DC. Initially, then we moved to Maryland to a motor lodge. And then ultimately we ended up, we were the first group that touched the floor of a $11 million rehabilitation site for men in Prince George's County, Maryland. My group was the first group. We, we, they had the grand opening of the store, which was in front. And the residential site was behind the store. So we were the first group in 1980, no, 1990 to move there. And that's when I had a roommate. So I went from the dorm. Well, I had two roommates and I mean, yeah, two roommates in the hotel. And then I had one roommate in the, the new site, but in the hotel, my character was tested by my roommate because he went downstairs to get a soda. That's what he said. So I logged it. I logged his name in the time he went downstairs. That's my job. So when he comes back, he got sweat all over his face, and now he wants to talk. Well, I know. I know what was downstairs. So not only did he get a soda, but he had used some crack cocaine. And now he wants to sit beside me and talk me to death. So I told him, I said, hey, man, you, 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 you got to go to sleep. Even though I knew he couldn't go to sleep, I said, you have to go to bed. You have to go in your room. So he kept on talking and said, look, I don't want to write a report. I'm going to do my job. And I did my job. Then finally, he went in the, in the room, knowing that he couldn't go to sleep because he just hit some crack. And crack cocaine wasn't my thing. But I knew it was an upper. 
So the next day, my job as security, I requested that he takes a urine from my boss, who was also in recovery. He was a residential manager. But come to find out, um, when I went to the morning meeting, it's a mandatory morning meeting. Everybody can come to the morning meeting. If you have a burning desire or any, any concerns, that's where you drop it, right there, to get it resolved. So I put in the request for this guy, my roommate, who was putting my, my sobriety or my clean time in jeopardy because people don't understand. A person can do crack cocaine and sit right beside you, and the odor, the odor, of the crack cocaine can get into your pores and you can become dirty. A lot of people don't know that. But I knew that. I knew that. And I was aware of that. And so I go to the morning meeting and the same guy that is my residential manager, he's trying to block me from coming in. And I'm trying to figure out why. He says, Kevin, what are you doing here? I said, I, I have a concern. I said, did you did you take the guy's urine yet? That was my request. He said, no, 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 not yet. I said, okay, well, I need to bring this to your boss's attention because nobody in this program is going to put my, pro- my progress in jeopardy. I don't care who you are. Wrong is wrong and right is right. You can't use no long pocket hand knife, you can't use no profanity, you can't use no alcohol or drugs in the program. That's written in the handbook. So finally, he opens the door. Now, the the, the, the brothers that normally don't see me, they were wondering, well, what is Wilson doing here? He's supposed to be asleep <laughs> because I work from 11 to 7 a.m. So when the program director, the same program director that didn't want me in the program initially because I had a back problem, she is the program director. So I asked her a question. It got real quiet. You can hear a pin drop. I said, Kathy, how many dirty urines do it take to expel someone from this program? She says one. Now, when she says that, I'm standing up. Everybody else is sitting down. So all eyes are on me and her. And I said, did you say one? She says, yes. And I pointed. I took my hand and I pointed to the to, to my roommate. I said, well, why is he still here? So now she didn't know what to say. She started stuttering. She says, well, Kevin, I think we need to take this up in my office. I said, no, 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 that's not necessary. What is necessary is we talk this right here among the population. So she said, no, 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 Kevin, um, we need, I said, I'll tell you what. If you don't want to talk about it here, I will wait until Major John Jordan returns from England. And she still refused. And she cut the meeting short. 
And somebody to my right was telling me, Kevin, way to go, man. Way to stand up for your, your treatment progress. And so I found out that my roommate was a informant for staff. Okay? That's what I found out. So anyway, I followed her to her office. My roommate came with us and the residential manager. Now, they didn't know, but I had an outside job. It was none of their business. So I had to report to work on time, and that's what I intended to do. So I told them this has to be very, very brief. So the residential manager wanted to justify his use by saying, well, Kevin, you know, we give people second chances. I said, well, hold up, sir. So you're telling me I can use the day? It's going to be okay. And then I can use on Thursday. It's going to be okay. And you still give me a third and fourth chance? They didn't know what to say. So I said, you know what? I have to take care of some business. But he cannot stay in my room, our room. He has to go to somebody else's room because he's not going to put my treatment progress in jeopardy. Nobody is. So come to find out, I went to work. When I came back from work, he was gone to a, they took him out of my room and put another guy in my room, put him in that room, and about a week later, he was gone, man. He, he, he was gone. The cocaine called him again. And, you know, about four, five, six years later, me and a, a guy named Bruce, we see this guy at the Pizza Hut. And we open the door, and he's at the counter getting ready to get his pizza. And this is what he says. My God, Kevin Wilson and Bruce Taylor, you guys, man, really worked that program. You guys look good. And he says, Kevin, man, I got to give you a hug. Number one, I apologize for my behavior when I was at in the program. And you did everything right. And I just looked at him. I gave him a hug, looked at him, and I could see he was in recovery. And uh, I said, man, well, I'm, you look good and stay good and, and uh, you know, enjoy your pizza. And that was it. But that was one of the one of the situations that I had when I was in treatment. So I had to uh, stand up for what was right by any means necessary. And then I left there in 1991 of April. Uh, before I left, I got a phone call from my mother telling me that my grandfather was being mistreated. So once again, you know, that old street behavior can, 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 can wake up if you allow it. And I'm trying to figure out, is this somebody in the community or, you know, I just didn't have all of, all of the, the, the details. She says, she says, no, it's your two aunts. So I said, well, I tell you what, I'm going to go there and I'm going to focus on him. And she told me he had Alzheimer's and I didn't know what Alzheimer's was. I had to do some research. And so that was my first job in leaving uh, treatment was to take care of him for until he died, which was June 20th, 1994. 
never look back, man. I just never, never look back. So I am a alumnus of the program, and the alumni comes comes back every every Friday. So that's that's the book. That that, that treatment saga is my book, and um, I want to use that tool, get it inside of uh, you know prisons and schools and treatment centers, and and mm-hmm. to to save to save uh to save a life like my life was was saved but you know i always as i each program that i went into i heard the same thing over and over and over but you can hear it over and over and over and it can register but if you're not how about that and my mind wasn't made up until that cop, that experience in the woods where I could have died, and that was that was the turning point. Prior to that, you know how you want to be slick or you think you're slick, but really you're fooling yourself. You just go and do the program for oil change and a tune-up. And while you're sitting there, the counselor's talking, and you get in your mind, you, you say, well, this is going to work this time. Instead of using on the weekends, because I gotta work. I'm off Monday and Tuesday. I'll use on Monday and Tuesday. That's what I told myself. But come to find out, none of that works. You know, I, it, it, it just doesn't, it didn't work for me. You know, so I was, I was pimped. I was pimped real good. I was seduced real good by three wives, four wives. And I was nicotine. Alcohol, cocaine, and heroin. Those four women seduced me very, very well. And I came to the conclusion that I loved them, but they did not love me. So I had to separate, and I don't miss them. (laughs) I don't miss them at all, you know, and um, that's that's. That's just the way it is for me. Now I'm very well connected to people in recovery. I thank God for, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Bob and Bill W. Uh, I love, I love conventions, man. I love conventions. And I used to go to the convention in Ocean City on a regular basis until COVID, COVID uh, existed. And so I know what it takes. I know exactly what it takes and I don't I don't want that monster I'm not I'm not gonna allow the monster to uh wake up, you know, so I keep it simple. I'm very much open minded. I don't suffer. I don't suffer from no oralism and uh I I even had to take the initiative to separate from my family because alcohol has done a very good job Alcohol and drugs and cigarettes have done a very good job on family members, and they're no longer with us. Mm. So, so I refuse. I refuse to go out that way. And my uncle, who 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 I resemble, he died at forty six, and uh, cancer and cirrhosis of the liver. So alcohol and cigarettes took him out, and I refuse. I refuse to go out like that. 
Well, Kevin, Kevin, I think uh, when COVID's over, when the conferences get back on, I'm going to come out to Maryland. I'd love to meet you in person. Oh, okay, great, great. Yeah, and I really, I really want to read the turning point. Did you uh, say you found a publisher? Or are you going to publish it like on the internet? Where are your thoughts on that? Right, right, right now we, I am seeking. Uh, I started a, a book, a book campaign on on GoFundMe to mm-hmm. to get the to get the to raise funds for the proofreading, uh, proofreading and editing uh, expenses, and it was a book cover, a book cover expense, but that's been excluded because I met a, a book cover designer on LinkedIn uh, from Italy, from Italy, and, and he stated uh, he showed me his work, and I was. Wow, I had to take a deep breath. It, it was really uh, outstanding. And uh, he said, well, "I tell you what, since you since you are on the verge of becoming a first time author, what I'll do? Don't make no decisions yet. I want to show you my work, and then we can have another conversation." So we had that conversation. He says, "I tell you what, I would do I would do your book cover for free." So I don't have a book cover expense. I just have an editing, an editing, a proofreading uh, expense. Also, on top of that, he he has booked <laughs> he has booked me for a speaking engagement in Italy in reference to my uh, my uh, past past lifestyle. So that's that's great, and that's that's where I am now. Once it is uh the book has had its makeover or surgery and everything is formatted correctly then i have a choice i have a choice to self-publish or i can get a publishing company um i haven't i haven't decided i'm just taking one one step at a time but i do know that the the company that wants to that I have to pay for the services in regards to my book they is they are willing to put me place me in the world's largest black author expo and it's 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 conducted every every year so they they have connections uh at that venue and she said that would be a very good venue for me to uh sell my book but right now right now i'm just focusing on getting the the the, the funds to get the book in the right right order and then go to i'm on I'm on first base right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Kevin, I'm, I'll put links to your GoFundMe and to the Turning Point uh, when I publish the podcast. And I really want to thank you for sharing your story. I think, I think your story will save lives, and I think it already has. So I really appreciate all your service and all you do, Kevin, for people in recovery. Uh, I'm glad you made it, man. Yeah. Me. Me too, Derek. <laughs> me too, brother. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, thanks, everyone, for listening to The Recovering CEO. This is Kevin Wilson. 
a very special guest from the Maryland, D.C. area, author of The Turning Point, and 32 years sober. So everyone have a great day. Stay sober. And we will see you next time on The Recovering CEO. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Derek. Thank you very much. You thought that you could have it all And life could be a ball But you fell and scabbed your knee